Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, we're going to get right into the third interview with Jackson and Xanthi today. But before we get to that, let me thank our sponsor, Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping you with everything you need to sew for your boat, from biminis and boat covers to upholstery work and even sewing your own sails. Sailrite is your one-stop shop for fabric, sail and canvas kits, tools, hardware and sewing supplies. Sailrite is also the maker of the patented Ultrafeed sewing machine, a portable heavy-duty machine that can handle all the sewing jobs for your boat and more. A passionate crew of DIYers, Sailrite produces high-quality, free how-to videos to empower their customers to turn their sewing dreams into a reality. All right, this is the third of four interviews with Jackson and Xanthi on Finding Avalon. I'm back with Jackson Cranfield. Is that right? Check Cranfield, because I think I mispronounced it before, right? Yes. Spot on there, Franz. Spot on. Okay. And uh, <laughs> we're at the ranch studio today. The last time we talked, I was down at my office studio. So hopefully the, uh, yeah, the, right. uh, the internet holds out for us up here. It's not as good up here as, as in my office. But you are still on the west side of the Panama Canal. And, uh, Correct. Yeah. And, and you're, uh, you're waiting... I, We'll get to that in a minute. Well, I don't know if we'll get to it today, but we've got a lot to cover still. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we do. We I mean, do. the reality is you have so many stories to tell and so much to share with us that I don't want to cut it short, and we'll just keep coming back for as many episodes as it takes yeah. to get yeah, through yeah. the whole story. So, good. So, all right. So, the last time we talked, we had just arrived yep. at Cartagena. And yep. uh, from Cartagena, you stopped there, and, and was it your father and mother, or Xanthi's father and mother? Yeah, that? yeah. So my parents uh, joined us there, and we Xanthi actually, her parents live there. Um, so they lived there for about half a year. Uh, so we had the opportunity to spend some time on land and uh, in a house, which was nice, and we just left the boat in the marina there. Um, so we did that for about a week. And then we made our way down to Almirimar, um, okay. where we then spent the best part of three weeks. All right. Now, I haven't, uh, I've started working through your YouTube videos, and a lot of, uh, and one of my friends, I think, has watched all of your YouTube videos. And I actually just talked, yeah. I just talked to Jack Andrews uh, yesterday, and he's in Malta having his r- rigging redone in Malta and I said oh I wish yeah. I'd uh, I wish you'd uh, had a chance to listen to this podcast you might have put it off till uh, Almiramar but tell us yeah. tell yeah. us uh, the, the, the re-rigging project how did it go and uh, what problems or just just let's go through that yeah sure so look as, as we said in, uh, in the last one I mean we bought a boat that was 13 years old Sorry, 15 years old, uh, 13, sorry, 13 years old and um, still had the original rigging. So firstly, insurance doesn't cover the rig um, once it's over 10 years. But secondly, I mean, we were about to embark on the Atlantic Ocean and cover another, you know, 15 to 20,000 miles home. So it was definitely a priority for us to get done. Um, 
I actually contacted the workshop there, the boatyard there. Um, I must have contacted them two months out um, to organise it. Um, and look, I, I found them really quite a very good service and I thought it was very good value for money compared to uh, a bit more of the eastern Medi Mediterranean around Croatia and Greece. It was almost half the price probably. Um, so, yeah, we turned up um, and we had the rig pulled out of the boat and it took the guys probably, I'd say, a good week and a half to do the job properly beginning to end. Um, and in that space of time, we added in a second jib halyard for a storm jib and uh, did a few other alterations. We added a third reef to the mainsail. Um, but this for us was our biggest opportunity. Uh, it was our longest time that we'd spent doing boat work. We did two and a half, three weeks of boat work. Were you living on the um, boat the entire time? Yeah, we were, yeah. So the boat was just in the water. Okay. Um, and look, it's a great spot to kind of do that thing, to get the boat work done. There's a good little community there. Um, you know, quite a bit of atmosphere, but also plenty of resources. You know, there's two full-time riggers plus a sail maker. Uh, who also does a lot of rigging. Um, there was people there to do biminis and cushions and there was three chandleries. Um, and being part of Europe, I mean, they could basically order anything you needed within a day or two. So, you know, every day I'd go off and do the same little circuit and go to all the chandleries to see if they have what we needed. and um, If not, order it all in. Hmm. Um, but, look, after... You know, at this point, we've been in the Mediterranean for three months. Um, we'd got to know the boat pretty well, and we'd got to know how we were living. Um, and so it was really about preparing the boat to become a full-time liverboard. And, you know, we installed a saltwater foot pump, um, which made a huge difference, I mm -hmm. think, to our water consumption. Um, we added in additional bilge pumps, we, as I said, we put in the third reef. Um, we, yeah, and provisioning as well. I mean, there was two big supermarkets there, so that was our best chance to do a full provision. Um, so you bought a lot of... So, yeah, uh, it was a really you, busy you three weeks. A, you bought a lot of food there as well then, I take it, huh? Oh, a lot of food, yeah. So we did basically all our dry goods, um, and that was Xanthi's mission for the better part of two weeks was every day off to the supermarket. And we also did um, a lot of food testing, which I'd really recommend to everyone out there um, because, I mean, you'd be able to relate to this, obviously, but, like, it's the first time that we had ever bought so much food. And it seems bizarre when you're there and you're buying 30 jars of pesto and... 50 jars of tomatoes and all this stuff because it's just quantities that you've never dealt with before. Um, so I'd say go and do a taste test if you can. Go and buy all the stuff that you think you want to buy. Make sure you like it before you go and invest in 40 jars or tins of it because <laughs> we've still got tin calamari on our boat that none of us are going to ever eat because it was just not what we thought it was. Yeah, you're like, you're, we, you're, you're sort of like me. You're out, you keep it around just in case you get stuck out in the middle of nowhere with no food or, and you'll, you'll eat it at that yeah. point in time, right? 
<laughs> you know, we know we've hit rock bottom when we've got to pull out a tin of calamari. Um, that's where we're at. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was a look. It was a really great place, and at the same time, we also had the opportunity to meet quite a few other cruisers. I mean, at that point, you're meeting people that are also going to be leaving the Mediterranean and making their way down to the Canaries. Um, we met two other young couples, both in their early 30s, who were doing the exact same as us, and uh, they both spent actually two seasons in the Med um, and were making their way down to the Canaries. So, yeah, it was a really nice social time and, um, yeah, just a lot of boat work. Now, I remember pulling into Almiramar year, you know, like I say, 1969, and it was a huge marina. And I'm looking at it right now, and I'm, I'm jogged, my memory's jogged back, but that's a huge marina in there. So it's got all the services you could possibly need then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, look, I think it was the cheapest. Um, I think it was, like, 200 euros to haul your boat out. Um, funnily enough, some of our friends who we met there, they had their boat, their boat hauled out there, and I think they anti-fouled their boat there for close to maybe 400 euros or something and um, they just pulled their boat out now in Panama and it cost them more like all up I think it was 900 US to do the same job so well, yeah, yeah if you're um, I think once you get down there around that around that spot in Spain um, and I hear Mallorca is pretty good as well um, to get that kind of boat work done so yeah I could really recommend it yeah, but, but the marina at Mallorca is ungodly expensive. So yeah, yeah. Not, oh, I mean, we were paying eight euros a day in our Miramar for a okay. thirty-eight foot. It was ridiculous how cheap it was. Um, so yeah, yeah, okay. So now you went straight from Cartagena on down to Almiramar. Was that how long? Was that yeah. about a day, day and a half? As I recall, it's about a day. Yeah, we did it as an overnight. Okay, um, we weren't quite fast enough to fit it into a day um so we actually did it at night um we actually hit our first record speed on the boat um because we were doing we we're doing 12 to 14 knots downwind um where we just got stuck in this squall basically that went on for about three hours um and yeah we it was one of those things, it was quite a comfortable point of sail, but we were just consistently hitting 12 knots. Um, and it was pitch black at night. You just couldn't, we just couldn't see the sea state. Um, so, yeah, it was quite an eventful sail down there, and we were pretty tired by the end of it. Um, and there was actually two other boats that were just around us at the time, which we didn't know about. And one of them actually broke their boom, and another one, rip their mane like because it, it was a good 25 knots but um yeah we'll put in the we'll put in the old rigging to its last test before we ripped it out <laughs> now you decided to add a third reefing point in your uh, in your mainsail and yeah uh, yeah you know and when i built my my new mainsail which was a year before last or about three years ago i guess it was by now uh i eliminated my first reefing point and put a deeper yep. second reef, and then put a really deep third reef. And, yeah, uh, I, yeah. Because I just found in the Mediterranean, I never went to the first reefing point. I always went no, directly to no. the second. Yeah. yeah. I would, um, 
I would agree with that completely. Um, you know, you, you either have the option to go put a third reef in or do like get a tri sail or something like that. Yeah. Um, and personally, I mean, we can do everything from the cockpit of our boat. Um, so it made a lot more sense for us to just be able to put a third reef in and not be up on deck trying to hoist tri sails and all kinds of stuff. Uh, we've been so surprised how much we've actually used that, that third reef. Um, once we were out of the med, I mean, even on the Atlantic, it was, um, which we'll get to, but yeah, it was a really nice addition to have the third reef. And the other addition was putting in the second jib halyard to hoist the storm jib. Um, mm -hmm. Because there was also a few times where you can only fell your Genoa so far before it's just really not performing as a jib anymore. Um, and we definitely found that once you're, especially if you're trying to head upwind um, and you're getting into the 28 to 30 knots, by that point, we were really heavily reefing that Genoa. Um, and yeah, just weren't making ground. So yeah, we've been really happy with the storm jib. We've only had to use it once, thank God. It's the kind of stuff that you always buy and hope you never have to use. But um, yeah, and I mean, the other thing we were doing in our Miramar was also uh, setting up all our safety gear. So our boat actually didn't come with a life raft. Um, it really didn't come with a lot of things. And so we were sorting out all our safety gear, which was a big effort, um, grab bags and EPIRBs and things like that to, yeah, get ready for the Atlantic crossing. Now you, I, I saw in your YouTube video, and you just mentioned it. You just bought a, a storm jib as well. Do you have roller? Yeah. Do you have roller furling on your boat? Yes, we do. Okay, yeah. how do you hoist your uh, your 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 storm jib with roller furling? Yeah. Yeah. So there is a few systems out there. One of them is like a sock that will go over the top of your furl genoa. And another one is the way ours is rigged up, which our, the sailmaker did for us, was basically we've got the hanks on the storm jib. Mm -hmm. And on each of those hanks, there's a rope with about five big beads. And basically, you set your storm jib up at the base of the furled up genoa and you hank, it, you hank the beads around the genoa and then hoist it up. And those beads allow the sail to basically just roll up the furled genoa. Okay. Um, so that gives the middle of your sail support. Um, the other bonus is it ensures that your genoa stays furled up and isn't going to go nuts. Um, and, yeah, also just kind of stops the wear and tear on it. Okay. So, that's how we got around that issue. So now, did you, do you untie the well. do you untie the sheets off of the uh, the jib before you do this? Then, no, we don't. So you can leave. So we will just do a couple of extra turns on the genoa and get mm -hmm. those jib sheets wrapped around the genoa. Uh huh. Um, and then I've got I've got a second lot of sheets that are just tied permanently to the storm jib, and they actually just run straight through the cars. So we do actually run new jib sheets. Okay. Jib. Okay. Well, but it's it's really quite an easy process. So and and even in strong winds, 
the you basically hank it on by taking a uh, those beads yep. around it and then hook it back or, or how do you how do you take those yep. beads around okay so there's a way of doing it i'll have to look that up because when i put a uh, i had i have a storm jib or a storm staysail on my boat as well and I've, I've used it only a couple times but yeah. the times i use it i actually did not have roller furling on my staysail and um yeah right okay yeah and now i've got roller furling on my staysail which is nice because that basically has yeah. become my storm jib more than anything else yeah but if i yeah. need it even smaller i still have my storm jib and i do have a storm trisail with a separate track but that would be such a pain yeah. to put up if i have to it's just just uh, i don't it really know. is and and i think um it's an important thing to consider and and just to be honest with yourself and say am i actually going to use it like in that situation like you have to be obviously uh thinking ahead and going well we need to put this up now at 30 knots because at 35 this is going to be a different story um but i know at times like while deploying our storm jib is an easy easy process in some regards there's definitely times when i've said i don't want to be up there on the bow like i can't be bothered doing it go to this effort um, and we persist with the Genoa um, so you definitely want to make the system whatever it is as easy as possible um, so with ours you can bunch up your storm jib on the bow put the beads around and basically you can walk back to the cockpit and then Joyce hoist the halyard uh, your sheets are already there um, and away you go it, you know it's it's it can be quite an easy process. Okay, and you had you uh, was that was that done at Al- Almiramar, the sailmaker at Almiramar? Did he do that for you? No, I actually um, I actually ordered the sail online. Uh, the sailmaker was Jekylls, I believe, from memory. J e c k a l l or something like that. Uh huh. Um, and I mean, they were the ones that suggested that system. Ooh, so, okay. yeah, I was really happy with it. I'll send you a photo. I'll yeah. email you a photo. Yeah, do that um, because I may want to do the same to my storm jib. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and as I said, there is another option to get a sleeve made up, um, which you can also hang around the um, – like you basically use the same system. You use the hangs on your storm jib if you've got them, mm-hmm. or, do you, or do you just have like a tape that goes into a track? No, I've got hanks on my storm jib, and that's yeah. why I was saying, yeah, well, yeah. what do I do with these now? Right. Yeah. yeah, so you could just get a sleeve also made up from a sailmaker um, and use that. Um, so, yeah, either system. Okay, great. That'll be good yeah. to take a look at that, and I'll uh, search for yeah. it online. But Yeah, I'll do a little video for you. And oh, yeah, do it. Put it on your YouTube yeah. channel. It stands for Franz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, sure. cool. All right, so you did a lot of work in Almiramar. That, and then, yep. uh, and then you got your boat loaded down, and you're probably uh, now two or three inches lower on your water line, as you. Yeah, left. yeah, we're real heavy, really heavy at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so you've basically provisioned for the crossing here, is that right? Uh, yeah. So we basically did all our dry goods for the crossing, uh-huh. a huge bulk of it. Um, plus, we then also had food for about a month make our way down to the canaries so all up we would have had probably about two or three months of provisions for dry goods at least 
Um, so, yeah, we left our Miramar, made our way down to Gibraltar. Uh, and, look, we'd actually heard quite a few interesting stories about Gibraltar. As you know, it can be quite a treacherous piece of water to go through. Mm -hmm. um, and we'd heard of quite a few people that had been stuck uh, on either side for weeks trying to wait for the right window to get through. Um, so, yeah, we'd left ourselves two weeks to get through the Gibraltar Strait and we really wanted to make our way down to Morocco and sail a bit of the Moroccan coastline and also do a fair bit of surfing. Um, so we'd always said, you know, if the weather window played out in our favour for the Gibraltar Strait, that we'd be able to get to Morocco. And as we had it, um, we turned up to Gibraltar and it seemed like it was a mass exodus the day after we left. Oh, sorry, the... the Sorry, the day we arrived, everyone was preparing to leave the next day. Oh, um, really? Okay. Because the weather had been... They'd all been waiting there for about eight days. Um, and so the following day was the day to go. So we had a morning in Gibraltar, um, did a real hot lap of Gibraltar and got back on the boat and headed out about lunchtime um, and left straight away. And that was it. Out of the Gibraltar Strait and into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and we made made our way down to Morocco. It was a five, uh, what was it? We had a five-day passage down into Morocco. Uh, we went to Agadir in Morocco. Where's that at? Um, it's pretty far down south. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm looking at Google. I always have Google Earth when I'm talking to yeah, somebody, yeah. so I'm working my, there it is, way down there, okay. Okay. So was it was it um, difficult cl uh, clearing into Morocco, or was it easy to clear into Mar Morocco? Yeah, it was, it was quite straightforward. Um, we had look the first four and a half days was a really really nice sail. I think we had between twelve and fifteen knots. Um, we were a little bit ahead of time. Um, I, I think I mentioned this to you actually when we had met Franz, but we also use a weather forecaster to give us a bit of help on some of the longer passages. Mm -hmm. um, and we use Commander's Weather, uh, which is a US company. Mm -hmm. And um, they sort of just do custom forecasts for you. And uh, on our final night, we, we were only about uh, 18 miles or so from Agadir. Um, and I didn't want to arrive too early. So... We actually slowed down, believe it or not, at about 3 a.m. And sure enough, just as the sun came up, we were only about nine miles out from Agadir. And this is about six o'clock in the morning. And then the wind just started building out of nowhere. And before we knew it, we had um, about 35 to 40 knots sustained wind um, directly from the, you know, directly from where we wanted to go. It was bang on the nose. Mm. And the day before, we'd, um, our furler had actually got jammed. Um, and so we had our, our Genoa just flaked on the deck, thankfully. Um, but it was the situation where we were eight and a half, nine miles out from our destination. And it took us 
11 hours to get there. Oh. Um, it was just so painful. That was when we had the third reef. We finally used the third reef, which mm-hmm. we were lucky we had. Um, but the seas, was, the seas were really big. Um, and this is when I'm saying this was the situation where I, I didn't want to be up on deck trying to muck around with a storm jib. Um, so we were trying to do our best to motor. But, yeah, we, were, we weren't making much. I think we were averaging about 0.8 of a knot. Um, so, yeah, look, we were pretty tired by the time we made it into port there. Okay, let me ask you. Uh, let me ask you a couple questions. Now, yeah. you you stocked up on dry goods. Did that include yeah. canned goods or just uh, other dry goods in Almere? Yeah, cans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And why why did you do it there? Did you have a had you talked to people? Was it less expensive to to provision there than other places? What was the reasoning for that? Uh, yeah, look, it it was uh, less expensive. Um, we also just wanted to get a bulk of it out of the way. Mm-hmm. Because we knew that we had quite a busy time once we got to the Canaries, um, and Xanthi was uh, way ahead in terms of provisioning. I mean, we were talking to our crew a good two months out about the kind of meal plan and the kind of things we want to eat and whatnot. So, yeah, look, it just made sense at the time to do it. There is absolutely no reason you couldn't do it down in the Canaries. Um, it, you know, it would have saved us carrying a couple of hundred extra kilos of food down there but it just made sense at the time um it was just a little bit cheaper and a little bit easier since we you know the supermarket was probably 200 meters from the boat oh yeah so yeah and when you're home you know, yeah santhi could just do a we could just you know bring the trolley over and just do a couple of loads each day and it was just manageable um as opposed to, you know, once we got to the Canaries, you either had the option to order all your food and get it delivered, um, which was an amazing sight to see because, as I said before, we joined the ARC, um, the Atlantic Rally for the cruisers. Um, and so the dock, I mean, it was amazing seeing all this food arrive just truckloads and truckloads of food and the docks were just packed with food that was going on these boats um, so yeah look we were, we were happy we got a bulk of it done but yeah it was um it was worth it okay so i'm so once you got to agadir talk talk to us about the customs yeah. procedures so it was actually yeah it was quite straightforward uh you weren't allowed to leave your boat you had to stay on your boat uh and a customs official and a policeman uh, boarded your boat. Uh, we did all the formalities on the boat. Uh, look, they were obviously a fair bit stricter. They they did quite a quite a thorough search of the boat. Um, we had actually read reviews that you know, they had uh, like drug dogs and sniffing dogs that would come onto your boat, um, but we didn't we didn't have that. Um, so yeah, look, the the clearing procedure was probably two hours. Um, other interesting things, I mean, like, they confiscated our drone um, and something else, uh, another piece of our camera equipment, um, just because it, you know, was illegal there, so they keep it while you're there in the country. Um, but, yeah, look, everything was done on the boat, cleared in, stamped passports, everything, um, just there in the marina. And that was it. 
Um, All right, so I'm looking at Agadir, and it looks like it's a big commercial marina, but then there's a yacht marina off to the uh, off to the east. It looks like. Yeah, that's okay. correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how is the marina? Nice little marina. Is it? Okay. Yeah, nice little marina. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not the ACI marinas that you're obviously getting in <laughs> Europe, um, but yeah, look, it suited the purposes that we needed. Um, a nice little safe spot. Interestingly, you're not allowed to anchor um, in Morocco unless you have permission by the port authorities. Um, and it's a very exposed piece of coastline, so there's really nowhere to be anchoring anyway. So you're kind of bound to those little marinas along the way. Uh, there was another one up at Rabat, uh, which was also quite a popular one. It's a bit closer to Marrakesh. So quite a few cruises go there. But the warnings we had of that were if the seas get up, uh, they close the port and you're not allowed to leave port because the, the seas are too rough there. Mm. So there was a bit of a risk on that. So anyway, we made our way down to Agadir. And from there, it broke up the trip quite nicely because it was only about a two-day sail from there over the Canaries, I think, remember, two or three days. Now, so, what time of year are we yeah. talking about here? What when 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 are we doing this? Sorry, say that again. What, what time of year? What month are we in now? Uh, we are in October. October. Okay. Okay. So yep. we're in the the very stormy season in the uh, in the Mediterranean, and yep. uh, you're heading yep. far enough south to get out of the storms in, but you still got caught in them. <laughs> yeah. Look, we were still. It was, um, I, I actually think I said it in the last podcast, friends, but it was, it stayed with me when you said it, that it was like, once you start getting to that pointy end, the end of that season, and you start seeing the red and the purple, um, it's, it's a very turbulent time in those weather systems. Portugal was getting absolutely hammered at the time, um, and a lot of that swell and wind was being driven down the coast. And so I think... 30, well, the 40 knots that we had was the front of a storm where it was consistently 30 to 35 knots for probably a week down there in Morocco. Um, and it was cold. I mean, it, at that point as well, like as we were coming out of the Mediterranean, it was getting really cold in our Miramar and, um, you know, especially through Gibraltar and the passages down there. Um, we were in, we had multiple layers on, we had jumpers, we had all our spray gear on, all whole time when we were sailing um we were wearing gloves booties beanies yeah it was, it was cold and morocco was cold um but we we didn't spend too much time around agadir we actually hired a car and threw the surfboards in and went on a bit of a surf adventure for a week uh, which was really nice and made our way up to marrakesh and explored the city up there so morocco was it was just a really cool place. Uh, it was a really nice change from being in the Med um, to experience a different culture and a different way of life. Um, but, yeah, found everyone there super friendly and accommodating. Um, and, yeah, I could really recommend it because there were not too many boats. I would have said maybe 10% of the guys that we met passed then all bypassed Morocco went straight from Gibraltar down to the Canaries. So, um, yeah, for the listeners out there, if you get the opportunity, I'd really recommend stopping in at Morocco. 
So what were the winds when you left and before it turned yeah. on your nose? What were the winds? Were they from the uh, were they land breezes, sea breezes, north south? What what were the winds like uh, going down the coast? We would have had a we would have had a northwesterly. Okay, perfect so, for sailing then. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. So we had a really nice following breeze from Gibraltar all the way down, um, and that was where we realised that we kind of had got this golden window because after that it was that this huge weather storm that I, I actually think they're calling it a cyclone or a hurricane that was hitting Portugal, um, and that was sending ripples all the way down um, and, and a lot of wind all the way down. So, yeah, we met a lot of people that were stuck in Gibraltar for two weeks, basically just after we'd left because of that, that weather system up there. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tough time because um, obviously you want to make the most of the Mediterranean and do as much time as you can. Um, and you also don't want to spend too much time down the Canaries because you don't want to leave too early. But, yeah, it's a tough time to be there. It's cold and unpredictable weather. All right. So I, I watched one of your YouTube videos when you arrived in Gibraltar, and you didn't stay in Gibraltar. You stayed at a Spanish marina. Where is that Spanish Correct. marina? Where, where, which one was that you're talking about? Oh, it's just north. It's just literally on the other side of the border. Oh, okay. Right um, across the airport then, huh? Oh, yeah, I see it there. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Just on the other side of the airport. I mean, that's the border there. and you, It was much cheaper. Um, and just a little bit easier in terms of the visas because we were just going, you know, it's easier for us to check out um, because obviously being in the Eurozone and for Schengen and whatnot um, just made a little bit more sense for us and, yeah, heaps of buses and everything that goes straight in. In fact, you can walk from the marina. It's yeah. probably a 20-minute yeah, walk over the border. I've done that and walked straight across the tarmac at the airport when you walk across the yeah. border. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that's that's good to know because I, I remember going to uh, Gibraltar and I went right into Gibraltar and that was an expensive marina there. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think it was only about 25 euros, something like that, to be in the Spanish one. Okay. Now, you, uh, you said you're furling a jam. What brand of furling is that? Uh, we have got a Selden Furlex. Really? Because I've yeah. never heard of Furlex jamming. I've always stuck with Furlex because because uh, I've never been able to jam mine. What happened to it? Yeah. So what actually happened was, and I must say our riggers did an amazing job on the whole rig, um, but the one detail that they missed out was there's two locating screws on the top of your Furlex drum. And that holds the uh, the track in place on the force day. Mm-hmm. And what had actually happened was those two screws, those two grub screws had worked their way loose. So that whole track had actually dropped down inside the furler mm, okay. and then got caught on the mechanisms inside. So at the time... I didn't actually realize that it was an easy fix. Um, I was actually very fortunate that once we made our way to Morocco, I had a friend back in Australia who I called um, and they did a little bit of investigation and found out that, yeah, it was literally these two screws and all we had to do was slide the track 
back up probably an inch and put two new screws in and we're good to go. Um, but yeah, it was a little bit concerning at the time. Were they, were, were, were they standard screws or standard metric screws or did you have to get a special a couple special screws to go in there? They were a standard. Look, the replacements we ended up using were a standard metric screw. Mm-hmm. The actual real, like the proper screw has like a tapered nipple on the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time I was able to just simply get a, a, a bolt in there that would actually fit and would um, fit the thread and that held it in place. And then once we made our way to the canaries, I was actually able to get the, the right screw with the nipple on the end and swap it out. So did you yeah, put, it wasn't too big of an issue. Did you put Loctite on it the second time? Oh yeah. They're never coming off again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something yeah. that, uh, I hadn't thought about, and when they, I paid somebody to put up my Furlex on my staysail. I put my own one on the jib, on the, uh, yep. the main jib myself, but yep. uh, I, I hope they put Loctite on that because I don't want that to happen to me. So that's something to, to think about when you pull down your mask. Make sure you take those out and put on some Loctite when, you go, when they go back up then. Huh? Absolutely. Um, I, I know we're backtracking a little bit here, but I would... I would really recommend uh, if people are getting their rigging done to be there and be part of the process. Um, you know, the guys we use, you know, I had a pretty good relationship with them by the end because I was there helping them, you know, cut the wires and do all the swages and stuff and, you know, without getting in their way. But it's, uh, you, know, you don't get too many opportunities to, to learn how your rig goes together. Um, and also... They do things so quickly. You know, everyone does it in their professions where they have done things a thousand times and they, they miss little things here and there. But once we got to the Canaries, you know, we went through and I went through every bolt again on that rig um, and made sure it was properly loctited and seized and we made sure every shackle was seized and those things because, yeah, it's, you know, to rip a rig apart, there's hundreds of little operations along the way. And as something as simple as that, you know, if that if that furler had got jammed when if it had got jammed a day later when we got stuck in that forty knots, um, I would not like to think what have, would have happened because it took us two hours to manually unfurl the sail to get it on the deck, um, and we were doing that in ten knots, and it was a handful. But yeah. If we had been hit with that kind of breeze with a jam furler, it would have been a different story. So how did you unfurl it? Did you just unwrap it manually, up and back and up and back and up and back? Yeah, we did because it was actually Xanthi. Uh, during the night, she was uh, trying to furl it in, and that's when it got jammed, and she wasn't able to do it, and she probably had done about two turns on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we literally untied the, the sheets and unwrapped the sail mm-hmm. um, off the furl and then just dropped it down on the track and just flaked it onto the deck and secured it onto the deck. Um, because, yeah, look, we, we always, at that point, we brought the jib down at night because we were sort of, you know, two nights out from where we were getting. So we just brought the jib down at night. Um, and during the day, we just hoisted it like a normal sail, you know, just hoisted up the track and flew full Genoa. Um, so yeah, we were just lucky that that night we 
had pulled it down um, and flaked it and secured it on the deck. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, it was – if it had gone the other way, if it had been in the position where it had jammed once it was almost completely felled, we probably would have just, you know, done the final turns manually and left it there because it was hard work trying to get that sail up and down. All right. So from Morocco, you head over to the Canaries then? So this is now probably yeah, the did. first of November about or, do you, or thereabouts? Yeah, yeah. So we, uh, yeah, we're early November now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so we first the first point of call was Fort Aventura, okay. um, mm-hmm. which is one of the northern islands in the Canary chain there. Mm-hmm. Um, we stopped there for a few days. Uh, we actually... Some of Xanthi's friends came and joined us, and uh, this was the first time we could actually get a bit more surfing in. Uh, there's a nice little anchorage uh, at the top of Fort Aventura there near a little port. Um, I'll just try to find the port here on Google Maps. The, the Correo? Um, and there was... Coraleo? Coraleo? That's it. Yeah, okay. Cor- that's it. Spot Coraleo. on. Coraleo, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tiny and, little um, port up there. Yeah. Yeah, very small little port. Um, and if you just zoom in there on the map, you can see that there's a it's like a bit of a ferry dock as well. Mm-hmm. But you can actually anchor just in that little bay. Oh, really? Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So we just anchored there. It was, look, there was quite a few, because there was quite a few weird currents um, moving around there in the wind. It was, it was quite a tight anchorage. And generally pretty poor holding you had to find a pretty good patch to get your anchor um we actually had a boat drag anchor and run into us in the middle of the night there but generally it was pretty good for the, for the time when we were there um i've actually just got the satellite view open and you can see that there's a few boats mm-hmm. yeah, anchored I'm, on the outskirts there. yeah i'm looking at google earth and uh-huh. i can see that yeah yeah and then even on google earth there you can actually see uh southwest of that anchorage there's a few lines there mm-hmm. a few breaking waves mm-hmm. off that point yep so for the keen surfers out there you could either just take your dinghy or paddle um and that was an amazing little surf break just to be right there the one thing we've learned is that surfing and sailing don't really mix um <laughs> you generally can't anchor where there's good surfing um so this was a rare little spot where you could actually get surfing um and then just to the east, there's a small little island um, mm-hmm, yeah. off that, off there. Isla de and Lobos. Got, yeah, Isla de Lobos. Yeah, Lobos. Mm-hmm. And that's got one of the best uh, right-hander waves just there on the uh, western side. And that wave goes for almost four or 500 metres when you get the right one. Um, so there's a lot of keen surfers there. And we were just taking the dinghy over during the day. Uh, we took the yacht over there one day as well and anchored off there. But, yeah, we had an amazing time there for there for seven days and just surfed and kite surfed. You know, the, it was almost dream conditions, Franz, because we'd surf in the morning till about 12, we'd have some lunch. The wind would come up, so the surf would uh, turn to crap and then we'd go kiting and go kiting all afternoon and... <laughs> wake up and do it the next day it was a it was a dream it looks Absolute like dream it, it looks like the sand is black is that right 
Yeah, yeah. So it's very volcanic there. They're little volcanic islands and, yeah, very dark sand. Yeah. Okay. So how long did you stay there then? So that sounds like uh, the endless summer for you right there. Yeah, it was um, it was unreal. We, we were there for eight days, I think, eight days in total. Uh-huh. Um, and then from there we made our way down to Gran Canaria. Okay, I got to uh, hold, on, hold on a second. Let's back up. Yep. So you were on anchor in uh, in in sketchy anchorage conditions do you ever feel comfortable leaving your boat at anchor and going off and playing <laughs> oh <laughs> it's a hard one Hans. um the short answer is no you never feel 100 percent comfortable uh but we have start started to live with it now um it is just something that it's it's very hard to be constantly boat bound you know it is uh, yes uh-huh. you know what we what i recommend is making friends with your neighbors often your neighbors are your best friends um and quite often we just you know say to our neighboring boat i'd run over in the morning just tell them that we're going for a surf and we'll be back in a couple of hours you know if the, the boat starts moving just to you know keys in the ignition kind of thing or um come and grab us we're just over there for a surf um so, yeah, look, there's, there's often someone on the boat. There's someone looking around. We don't go too far. Um, yeah, it's always within eyesight. Did you, unless uh, it's a, did you, check, out the, did you check out the price of the marina? Uh, we did, but it was full. Okay. It's a very small marina um, in terms of how many visitor spots they have. Okay, okay. Um, I think from memory they had something like... 10 visitor spots or something like that so yeah we um we we weren't able to make that happen so if you want that spot you need to reserve that way in advance then it sounds like absolutely yeah yeah look if you can get your anchor in a good you know we've got a bruce type anchor Mm -hmm. um it it can often be a bit of a pain to to set but once it's set um, we always dive on our anchor mm-hmm. wherever we go. Um, so, you know, as long as that thing's set and you put out a bunch of chain um, and make sure you obviously check the wing conditions, um, yeah, we're, we're happy to leave it for an hour or two. Okay, okay. All right. So I mean, we've left, we've left the boat all day today. We've left it for eight hours now out there in the anchorage. So Okay, all right. And you're doing this podcast. Hopefully the boat's okay then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So we, uh, I don't think we identified where you were at. Maybe I did, but let's just, uh, you're on the west side of the Panama Canal right now where you're recording this in a restaurant with yep. lots of background noise. So you feel that, uh, you feel like being on the ground where you're at. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's a little bit hard to find good Wi-Fi around here. So I do apologize if the background noise is a bit distracting. No, no, no. Um, Actually, I think it adds. I think it adds to the to the podcast. That's yeah. cool. Bit of atmosphere. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So we're just in the old town of Panama. Uh, for those of, who haven't visited Panama before, it's um, a really interesting city. Um, I'd really recommend spending a bit of time here. There's a lot of culture, a lot of cool places. But, yeah, we're in the old city at the moment, um, which is Nice and close to the anchorage, which is good. Okay, so let's continue on from. We'll we'll catch yeah. up in Panama when we finally get to Panama. But, but uh, yeah, okay, no worries. <laughs> so you went to Gran Canaria next, right? 
Yeah. So okay. we um, went to Las Palmas. Okay, that's on the northeast um, corner of the island then, right. Okay. Big marina there. Correct, yeah. And that was where we... Yeah, big marina. Um, and that was where we joined the Ark. So for those that aren't familiar with the Ark, it's, uh, it's a rally, big rally with about 300 boats um, that, you know, they, they do the trip every year. Um, and they, there's, they organize rallies all over the world. Um, and look, it's, uh, we had heard about it before we started this adventure and we, um, being our first ocean crossing, um, we definitely felt like we needed the support of having the organization and a lot of boats around and, um, and whatnot. So yeah, we were quite grateful that we joined the rally. By the time we got to the Canaries, you know, by that point we'd sort of done about 6,000 miles, I think, six to 7,000 miles. So we were getting quite comfortable with sailing and watches and that. So look, I don't know if we would have still booked it uh, at the end of our adventure, but we were definitely happy that we booked it at the beginning um, for the security of it. And yeah, so we spent 10 days down there in Las Palmas. Um, with the Ark, basically preparing the boat. Um, the bonus of doing something like the Ark is that they have a lot of seminars, um, which is just a lot of useful information on how to provision the kind of weather systems, um, emergency rigging, emergency tiller systems, um, sat phone communication. So just really useful information for first timers. Um, so yeah, we, that was a really busy 10 days uh, it was also where our crew met us. So we had Xanthi's dad, who had sailed a total of three days, I think, um, and was joining us to come and do the Atlantic crossing. And we had my mate Luke, who I'd met on the uh, US sailing team when I was studying in Miami. Um, and he'd done a bit of sailing with us in, Miami, uh, with, in Sardinia. Um, so he joined us as well. So, look, it was a really good 10 days to get the crew ready, get the crew involved with the boat um, and get their heads around what we're about to do. Um, and, yeah, geez, 10 days went real quick. Yeah. Before we knew it, uh, we had our closing ceremony and, yeah, we were off. You know, it's interesting. I've You know, when I talk about bringing my boat back across, I had guy. everybody I talk to wants to join me, and I find it amazing that people yeah. want, to, want to join you on that because... Uh, you know, when my crossing over was pretty rough. Coming back, yeah, it's, uh, it's yeah. supposed to be pretty easy coming back. It's considered almost a, a, a milk run coming back. Absolutely. I think you've already done the tough yards in terms of the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. But I keep saying, well, why do you want to do that? Oh, just to say they've done the Atlantic, just to say they've done an Atlantic <laughs> crossing. I think that's the reason. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, every, everyone has their different reasons, right? Um I know Luke, I, that was one of, it was a big milestone for him. He wanted to do some, some big miles, but someone like Neil, he just wanted to learn to sail. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for him, he, you know, he thought, what better, like, you're not going to get an opportunity where you can just sail 21 days straight, 24 hours a day, um, and really get a grasp on sailing. So, yeah, everyone had different objectives, and you met a lot of interesting people there that um, all had different reasons for it. But, yeah, I think if you've got the opportunity, go and do it. Test yourself. Um, see, see how you go. 
So you went straight from there. That's where you started the transatlantic then. Correct, yes. So you had no yep. stops on the other Canary Islands on your way through. You just started there and started the crossing then. Correct. So uh, we started there. We left there on the 25th of November. And we made our way to St. Lucia in the Caribbean. Um, that was where the Ark finished, obviously. Um, and, yeah, we so we did it in 19 and a half days. We arrived... Um, early on the 15th um, of December. And, yeah, we were really happy with that. Uh, we'd, we'd planned for a 22-day crossing. We thought we'd be able to do it in 22 days. Um, Worst-case scenario, we thought we'd do it in 30 days. But, yeah, we ended up doing it in 19. So, so, so how, many 19 nautical, like how many nautical miles was that then? We did 2,850 Okay, so you were really you were cooking along then. That's that's pretty fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We are uh, averaged just over six knots, um, which is quite good for us. Um, being a small boat, being a thirty-eight foot boat with four crew and a lot of supplies, water, diesel, uh, the boat was pretty heavy, um, and we didn't have any special sails. We just had our Genoa and our mainsail. Um, and yeah, went went for it. Did you do any fishing on your crossing? We did, yeah. Did you catch anything? Uh, we'd actually, yeah. Look, we just we bought a fishing rod when we were there in the Canaries. Um, the first fish we pulled in was a nice big mahi mahi, mm -hmm. uh, which was awesome. How fast? And then day how, two. How, how fast sorry. were you? Go how fast were you going when you caught it? Oh. We were going about seven knots at the time. Yeah, that's what I found. We we seemed to catch the tuna on our crossing when we were going balls to the walls, and we were really going fast. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, you had to be going fast, um, but then we also learned the hard lesson two days later where I don't know what we caught, Franz. We caught some kind of Atlantic monster out there um, because we had a big reel, and I had... 550 meters of line on it um and whatever we caught just ran and it was ripping out line faster than we could get get a hand on it um and we finally did get a hand on it and probably gone through half our line and uh we had two of us on the on the rod and like one of us was on the rod one of us was on the reel trying to pull this thing in and it just kept ripping line, ripping line, and um, it ended up breaking the reel. It destroyed all the teeth on the gears inside the reel. Wow. Um, so that was day three of our 21-day <laughs> okay. passage. Fishing rod out of order. Everyone was a bit upset by that. Um, luckily, we had a little bit of spare line, and basically we tied up a piece of shock cord, um, to some line and just tied that onto one of the back cleats. And, uh, yeah, surprisingly, we actually caught about another four mahi-mahi along the way with that. Okay, um, good. So, yeah, all I'd say is you don't always need the most technical of equipment. Um, turns out all we needed was a strong cleat and a piece of shot cord. Um, <laughs> but the problem was you couldn't hear. So, you know, and it was a pain, pain in the ass to pull the line in. So we just left it in overnight. And uh, 
often you'd wake up in the morning and look back and it was just a poor mahi-mahi being towed behind the boat. Because, um, we, you know, we hadn't realised that he was there and he'd probably been fighting for a little while and just got tired because we'd been pulling him along at six or seven knots for, for an hour or so. <laughs> All right. So we've gone about uh, 54 minutes now, and I think we need to call it another interview, and we'll catch, catch up yeah. a little later on. How's that sound? Okay. That sounds perfect, we'll, Brian. We'll, Let's do that. And then, um, we will start our we'll, next um, adventure go. in the Caribbean then, huh? Yeah, yeah. So we, we can finish off the Atlantic crossing and then, yeah, start the Caribbean. Well, do, how much more do we have to cover on the – oh, yeah, I guess you've got lots of adventures to talk about on the Atlantic crossing. So we'll, we'll cover that the next time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, let's do that. All right. So I'm going to turn this off, but you and I are going to talk for a second. So I'm going to say, Perfect. all right. Thanks. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. <laughs>